very sincerely, uh, Tom and Chris, you have not only been uh, friends to our church, but you've been personal friends. Diane and I have traveled. We've traveled together. We've, had, uh, we've done some trips together, and we've been good friends for the years. Uh, you know, uh, adversity kind of begins to breed a good friendship. Our first time we began to connect, we were asked to go to a meeting with our then district superintendent, Richard Bush. And uh, there was a fellow in the district that took some money from the district and didn't want to return it. So Richard asked the two of us to go with him in this meeting. We met in a hotel uh, conference room, you know, kind of midway for everyone, and we sat down. And during this meeting, this guy went after our beloved district superintendent, R Richard Bush, who has now since gone home with Jesus. And it made both Tom and I, and we knew each other, but hadn't really worked together, but it made us angry. So we asked Richard if he'd leave the room for a few minutes. And so Richard said yes and left. And I, man, I went after this guy, and I took a breath. And since I took a breath, Tom went after this guy, and I came back. And we went, we, after a little while, he said, fine, I'll return the money, I'll do everything. We were walking out of the parking lot, and Tom says to me, he goes, we could have taken him. <laughs> to which I said, well, I know I could have. And thus the friendship began. Uh, you guys have been friends to our church, but you have been friends to Diane and I and to every district pastor. Uh, you are going to be missed. However, you're supposed to be down in Florida in this new place. God has been very clear that's where you're supposed to be. And we would, want, want, we would not want you to be in the wrong place. You're in the right place right now this morning. And in two weeks, you'll be again in the right place as you follow your calling. Come and preach. God bless you, Tom. Well, it is a privilege to be here for the uh, final time that we will speak to an Alliance congregation in New England as superintendent. This church has always been uh, a place that we've looked forward to visiting, and uh, it has been a great experience to be a part of uh, what God has been doing in New England for us now almost 22 years, actually. And so we're making that big move, but it has been uh, really just an honor to see what God's been doing among us. And he's done some great things in the last decade, especially, where we've had opportunity to observe that. Uh, you are served, as you know, by not only a great senior pastor and wife, but also by an incredibly capable, devoted staff here as a part of Essex Alliance Church. And uh, it has been a privilege for us to work with them as well. So if you have a Bible this morning, would you open to the Gospel of John chapter 21? You can find your way there, and I'll tell you a little bit of why I'm turning to this particular text which I turned to about three weeks ago when our pastors and uh, families gathered together for the last time in that annual uh, conference that we have where we come together, uh, which you've hosted here at the Essex Alliance Church on occasion. And I said to them, it seems kind of fitting when I may have my final opportunity to speak words to you from the role uh, that I hold, that we would go to a place where Jesus gathers the disciples and speaks uh, at least one of the final times on earth to the disciples. So John's Gospel, chapter 21, and I'm going to read 19 verses, so you'll have to stay with me. But the reason I'll read it is because I want you to get the context of what's happening here. 
It was a few years ago that we traveled with Scott and Diane and some other pastors to the Holy Land. It was a first for Chris and I. Um, That was an incredible experience. It changed my perspective on the gospel in a myriad of ways. My favorite part of that entire trip was being in the north country near the Sea of Galilee. I come from a small town where there are more cows than people. I kind of like the country more than the city. And so we were up there in a more rural area. At night, you walk out to the sea's edge, and it's not like a lake here uh, in the United States. It's not surrounded by lights and houses. There are sporadic lit places, but there are just uh, just wide open spaces and, and just a dark sort of covered the sea. And then in the morning, the sun would rise. And on some mornings, it would be a little choppy. Other mornings, it would be smooth. And so it's easy for me to transport myself back to that setting for a moment. You do the same the best that you can. Uh, here's what's happened. Jesus, as we know, has gone to the capital city for the Passover observance. His enemies have betrayed him into the hands of Roman authorities and the religious leaders of the day have consulted and even conspired with them that they believe Jesus should be punished for the claims that he's made about being God, the Son of God. Ultimately, he goes to Golgotha. He goes to the cross. He's crucified. The good news is he fulfills his promise that he says they're going to tear this temple down, meaning a reference to himself. Three days later, I tell you, it will be rebuilt. And Jesus comes out of the tomb. He's alive. And these women make their way on what is Easter Sunday morning for us to the tomb only to discover it's empty, thinking that somebody has done the unthinkable and they have taken the very body of the Lord that they've grown to love and they've somehow hidden it. But we know that's not the case, right? Jesus is alive. And so uh, he appears to these women and then ultimately to his closest followers and um, He says to them, there are a few appearances that remain for me. And he makes a direct reference to this one in particular. He says to Mary, Mary Magdalene, tell the brothers that they need to go back north to Galilee. I'll appear to them there. On another occasion, Jesus was gathered with the disciples. He's making reference to his crucifixion. And he says to them, I will appear to you again when you go back to Galilee. And so they're right where they're supposed to be. At the time they're supposed to be there, actually doing what I think they're supposed to be doing when we come to this conversation between Jesus and the disciples, John 21. I'll start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. 
When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus asked, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The, th the third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Pray with me. Father, take this word, which is your own, and cause it to be appropriate and edifying for us who are here looking at it this morning, myself included, for the glory of your name. Amen. Well, since it's been given away this morning that I am a bit of a country music fan, um, you will remember, if you are at all a country music fan, that a few years ago, uh, Thomas Rhett, a country artist, released a song called Beer with Jesus. It sounded rather sacrilegious when I first heard the title, but I was intrigued, so I gave it a listen. And I quickly became hooked. Maybe he has sort of redeemed himself in the last couple of years because he has since released a song with Chris Tomlin, who we all know is probably the king of worship music for the evangelical church today. And uh, so he uh, sort of has a song of faith as well. But in this song, Beer with Jesus, Thomas Rhett sort of describes this experience he imagines having with the Lord in a pub, if you will, in a, in a bar room off in a corner. The I like about country music most of all is that it typically tells a story. More often than not, it's a sad story. So in the last couple of years, I haven't been listening to much country music because there are enough sad stories out there. I don't need to listen to the ones that come over the radio. But in this uh, particular scenario, Rhett imagines that if he could have this opportunity to sit in a corner somewhere with Jesus, he would do a couple of things. He would say uh, to the waitress, whatever he orders, put it on my tab. Uh, the next thing he would do is he would find all the spare change he could and he would put it in the jukebox and he would choose all the best music that was available and he would just let a long play go. Uh, the third thing that he says that he would do if he had this opportunity to sit with Jesus is he would let him do all of the talking. That seems like good advice, doesn't it? If you had opportunity to have audience with Jesus, you would want to do more listening than talking. Agreed? And then he says, but if in the end, Jesus were to sort of turn the tables and say, now it's your opportunity uh, 
to, to say anything to me that you would like to say. Um, Thomas imagines that he would put a few questions to Jesus. And here are the questions he would ask Jesus. Uh, this one, how do you really, like with all that you endured, Lord, how did you really turn the other cheek? It's a good question, isn't it? I mean, I think it's a really great, great question. I've thought about it repeatedly. I don't know how, especially if I were the father in heaven, uh, watching what my son is enduring on earth, I don't know how I could ever turn my eye away from that and not come to his rescue. But he doesn't, and we know why the father doesn't. I, I think I would be more like James and John who said, listen, Jesus, these people are giving you trouble. How about we call down fire from heaven right now and just burn them up, turn them into french fries. Um, you know, that's the, the, the question, the scenario that's soaring in the mind of Thomas Rhett. He says this, here's another question I'd ask Jesus. Do you really hear the prayers that I send? I mean, there are a lot of people that are praying all the time in the world in all kinds of languages. And because of the time difference, we're praying around the clock. And so my prayers, they probably aren't all that important. But do you hear the ones that I send up to heaven? Have you ever wondered about that? I mean, there have been days I've prayed. It's felt like there's sort of this brass sort of ceiling overhead. I don't even know if my prayers get to heaven. And if they do, if they get the attention of God. But that's a question that he would ask. Here's a good question. I think he's sort of growing in his curiosity. He says, so when do you think you really will come back again? That's a legitimate question. I mean, the gospel says this at the end. It says, you should be focused on the return of Christ. You should even be praying. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the last year and a half, I've said to my wife more than once, you know what? The remedy to all of this we know is the return of Jesus. I'm not afraid of the future, even though things in the world seem to be unraveling. Because for us as believers, it's not the end, but the beginning. There's a great revelation that comes with the unraveling of history in the world. And it's our great redemption that draws near. And so the artist asks, when do you think that might happen? We look to that with great enthusiasm. And then he asks this one, is heaven really just beyond the stars? And then his final question, he said, if I were given the opportunity, I would ask Jesus. So what exactly happens when life ends? Haven't you ever wondered about that? I mean, you don't get heaven in all of its fullness if you read the gospel, but you close these eyes for the final time and you open them in the presence of Jesus. No long, dark maze to be navigated where you hope there's Jesus and a light at the end of the tunnel. No, you close these eyes down here. If you're a follower of Jesus, you open them and there he is. Somehow you are cast into the very presence of Jesus. A lot awaits you in the future, but that's sort of his list of questions. As you come to the 21st chapter of John, it's almost as if Jesus has anticipated some of the questions of both ancient and modern people. Here are three questions that I see answered in this particular text. This first one, how do you live successfully as a follower of Jesus in this world? I mean, that's a good question, especially the world in which, you know, we live today. How do you live successfully down here as a follower of Christ? The second question that I see that sort of naturally surfaces out of this text is, how do you recover when you're not successful? And then the final question is this one. How do you end really well? 
It's one thing to start well as a follower of Jesus. It's another thing altogether to end well. And ending well is more important than starting well. People observe how your life concludes more than they observe how your life sort of began as a follower of Jesus. It's it's a great list of questions. So again, they're back in Galilee because Jesus has told them that that's where they should be. Um, It would be easy to be critical of the disciples and say, why didn't you leave Jerusalem and go throughout the countryside and all the cities and villages and towns and tell everybody the gospel? But, But you know, not only are they back there, At the time they're supposed to be, they're doing what they know to do, which is what? They go fishing, right? I mean, and somehow Jesus appears in the routine of everyday life. And haven't you found, if you've followed Jesus for any length of time, that that's more often the case for you, that he sort of appears, be it... uh, in the kitchen. He speaks to you when you're out in the yard. Maybe more so than he does when you're gathered at a convention of Christ followers, or maybe even more so than when you're here seated in a sanctuary. My most profound experiences with God, the ones that have been most transformative in my life have not happened inside of a sanctuary or in a seminar. They've happened somewhere, maybe when least expected, or when I've sort of retreated away from those sorts of settings or opportunities and just said, I'm here to be with you, God. And the disciples are where they know to be. They're doing whatever it is they know to do. On this particular occasion, they, they decide they're going to go fishing. And because people tend to follow Peter's leadership, they say, well, we'll go with you. And you know what happens. They fish all night long, and they're unsuccessful. Few things in life are as demoralizing as being unsuccessful at something you know how to do. Isn't that true? I mean, I've only been trained um, for the most part in in undergraduate and graduate school as to know how to be a pastor or how to preach sermons. And I've preached some sermons that I think have been marginally successful. Maybe you think this one's only marginally successful. I've preached some sermons that I'd go home and I'd say to Chris, well, that was a dud, you know, and I can't blame it on Jesus. I, I just, I, I either missed the audience or I, I, I missed the main thing that needed to be said from this text. Here, they're unsuccessful at something that not only do they know how to do, but that matters. You know, ask any young mother who's trying to raise her children. She knows how to do it. She knows what to do. But some days she feels as though she's more successful than others. And she'll say, today was a grand slam, you know, um, pictures galore, and uh, the kids had a great day. But there are some days a young mother will say, I don't know if I made any difference whatsoever here today. You know, in this moment, fishing mattered. Catching fish mattered even more. But they're unsuccessful at something that they know how to do. And behold, in the morning, someone appears on the shore. Maybe it's someone who's looking for fresh fish. Right? Maybe there are people who just know before anything makes it to market, if you want the freshest fish available, you go down to the shore. 
I mean, we live close to Boston, so we know the boats that pull in in the morning with fresh fish and people who will literally go to the pier to get the freshest fish available. And so whoever it may be calls out to them, friends, have you any fish? And almost in an effort to seemingly underline their failure, the response is this, no, no fish here. If you're looking for fresh fish, you'll have to look elsewhere. And apparently that's not what he's looking for. He's looking for something else altogether. And so Jesus says, you're not far from shore, but, but throw your net starboard. And you'll find a catch there. And they do, and you've read the story. 153 commentators have hypothesized why we get the number of fish. I really don't know exactly why it is that we get in the text the number of fish that are caught that morning. 153, but I do know this, they're large fish. The net doesn't tear, and Peter could care less. He, he grabs his outer cloak and does what Peter does. He, he jumps out of the boat into the water and heads for shore because he knows that it's Jesus. And it becomes for me one of the most sacred exchanges perhaps in all of Scripture where you really don't know if anything or what, if something was said, what exactly what was said. Jesus makes his way to the shore, or Peter rather makes his way to the shore, and there's Jesus. And you know this ardent supporter has abandoned the Lord in his most desperate hour. And... Um, He's sort of waiting to see what's going to happen. You know, how do you live successfully as a follower of Jesus today? It's really in many ways no different than the way ancient people lived. I mean, Peter was sort of that, you know, leader of the fan club for Jesus. I will not only live for you, I'll die for you. And if anybody comes after you, they'll have to come through me first. And yet when the pressure was really on, you know, that he sort of slips away, denies he even knows him. But it's preceded by this act of obedience where Jesus says, how will you catch fish? Um, just throw your net out there one more time. One more time. You see, the only way I know to live successfully as a follower of Jesus in this world, whether it was these earliest first century followers or whether it's us as modern people, is to do so by faith. That's it. I mean, you would want for something more, but it really is the way it begins and the way that it ends. You remember Luke's gospel. He talks about an exchange that's similar to this. Jesus is uh, there at the shore one morning. It's been another night of unsuccessful fishing. The, the disciples have actually made their way to shore. They're cleaning out their nets. And Jesus has a crowd of people he's teaching. And his voice is going to carry better from the boat over, the, over sort of the, the water. And he says to Peter, I climbed aboard one of your boats. Could you just push off a little bit? He gets done, finished saying what he has to say. And he says to Peter, it looks like you haven't had a very good night. Why don't you grab your nets, jump in the boat, and we'll push off a little bit for a catch. And on this particular occasion, Peter's not so quick to obey. He actually resists a little bit. And I think for good reason, conventional wisdom would say, listen, you're a teacher, Jesus. We're fishermen. You need to know that the largest fish, they don't pool in the morning light, especially near the surface. And that's how you catch fish. 
this far close or this close to the shore. They've got to come this far in. The water's shallow. It's warm. The fish are out in the deep. But because it's you, Jesus, we'll do it. And you know the story. The catch is so great that on this occasion, the nets actually begin to tear open. Isn't it funny that it begins and ends the same way? You've got to trust me when I say to do something, Jesus, to the disciples. If I say cast your net here or go there, if I say cast your net now, even though it's not the ideal conditions, do what I direct. That's the way this life goes. It's all about faith, beginning and end. It's the only way to be successful. That's the way we obey him. He says you're to do something and we decide, okay, we'll go, we'll do that. And whenever you say or direct us, Jesus, then we'll follow your leading. Because we know this, apparently you see what we do not see. Apparently you do see you do see a school of fish sort of pooling there just off the right side of our small vessel. And you see that's the place to cast our net. You hold this vaulted perspective and so we'll do what you say to do because you see what we do not see. That's why we're people of faith. There's just so much of life you can't see, agreed? You don't know exactly how it's gonna turn out. now. Um, I've been following Jesus now since I was 18. And so, I mean, it's coming up on 30 years for me or 35 years. I forget how old I am actually. But, you know, I'm just, I've been following Jesus and I know it's about faith beginning and it ends that way and everything in the middle is about willingness to trust him. But like you, I've had opportunities to trust him where I haven't done so well. How do you recover from those? How do you recover when you're not successful? We're people of faith, but we're imperfect people. Amen? I mean, the Bible does say this about your salvation. It says you've been saved. I mean, you're secure. Jesus keeps his word. You're sort of being saved, right? You're progressing in your faith. And one day, you'll find your fulfillment of salvation in the presence of Jesus in heaven. You'll be saved. You're being, you've been sanctified. You're being sanctified. One day, you'll be fully sanctified. But until that final moment, until that fulfillment, we fall down, we fail. And what do we do when we do so? We get back up, right? I mean, you may have come here today and failure is before you, your own failure, your own mistake, your own frailty, there it is. And what do you do? Peter's in the throes of epic failure. I mean, just in the throes of it, I think were it me, I'd have gotten to the shore before everybody else so I could have asked Jesus this question. Hey, listen, before the rest of them get here, I got one question for you, Jesus. Are we good? Are we good? I just want to know. I don't know if that's what he asked him. It's what I would have asked. Uh, Are we good? So, as Pastor Scott said, this is my final Sunday preaching at one of our churches. And a couple of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go back and to preach at the church where I was a pastor before I became the superintendent. And uh, they were very kind and gracious, had this little gathering. And, you know, the problem with those kinds of gatherings is they say nice things, but it very quickly can turn into a roast of sorts, right? Right. 
And so they were sort of telling stories about my tenure there as the pastor. And very graciously, with all kindness, uh, they told some of the nice things about myself. They only said nice things about Chris. But then when it came time to focus on me, they said not only nice things, but they sort of marked some of my failures, some of my my mistakes as a pastor. And... um, uh, they told one of these that I sort of snickered at, I joked and laughed right along when they told it, but I knew that that was a failure of sorts for me as a pastor that I've never forgotten. And, and they didn't mean anything by it, but deep inside when they told that story, there was a bit of a sting for me that just remains because for me, it was about halfway through my tenure there as the pastor and I got really upset about something and I, and I sort of lost it and I expressed all of my disappointment with the way this person had done something that I wish they had not done. And um, that was one of those times where I just sort of lost composure. I mean, I didn't scream or yell or swear or any of that kind of stuff, but I sort of let them know I'm really not happy with you doing that. And I've never quite felt like um, I'll forget that moment of failure. And so when they told that story somewhat in jest, for me, it didn't feel that way. Whenever you live with a group of people long enough, um, sooner or later, not only do your strengths, but also your weaknesses become apparent, right? I'm convinced that the reason that Peter's sort of exchange here with Jesus at the end of John's gospel is as public as it is, is so that you and I would be able to see it and hear it. And we'd be able to see it for the rest of human history. Maybe Jesus affords Peter that private moment and it's not inside of scripture. Maybe he does ask, are we good? Maybe not. I don't know. It's what I would ask. And I suspect some of us would have asked Jesus. But, but he comes ashore and, you know, asks Jesus that question perhaps. And then Jesus asks questions of his own. You know, the same sort of question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And you get to the third time the question's asked. And I don't know if you caught it or not. But Peter actually says to Jesus when he's hurt this time of ask, being asked that question repeatedly. He says, listen, you know everything. Jesus, you know all things. So I get the point of asking me the question, but why ask it repeatedly? You already know the answer, and I've already answered this on a couple of occasions. It's really important that you and I understand what Peter says here on this third occasion when he answers, you know everything. You know, have you ever gone to pray and, and say to God, you're sorry for failure, a mistake you've made, a sin you've committed? And, you know, sort of early on when I'm following Jesus, I'd go to pray and I'd just sort of pray in such a way as to try to convince Jesus of two things. One, I'm really sorry and I'm really serious about my sorrow. Right? And I am. And I should be serious and sorrowful when I'm in a posture of repentance. But then I would make these sort of promises. Listen, Jesus, I'm going to try never to do that again. And and I want you to know I'm really, really serious. I want you to forgive me. And I'm going to try to make some act of restitution. I'm going to tithe 15% next week. I'm I'm going to volunteer to work in the nursery. I don't know who will preach the sermon, but I'll go to the nursery. Whatever it is, God. Whatever you need me to do. Whatever you want me to do. And, 
And sometimes in our humanity, we think that the effort to sort of recover from failure, especially epic failures, to convince God we're really sorry and we're really serious and we'll never do it again. And Peter just sort of says to Jesus, you know everything, including my heart. And God already knows that when you come striking this posture of repentance where you say to him, I really, I failed and I want to be forgiven. And if you remember right, actually the gospel says this, the next time you come to God asking for forgiveness, don't come sheepishly. Come confidently. You remember that? Because at this very moment, one of the places that Jesus occupies is a throne of grace. He actually sits atop a throne right now. He'll sit atop another throne when history draws to a close. It's a great white throne. He separates believers from unbelievers. But at this very moment, he sits on a throne and it's called the throne of grace. And from that very place, he dispenses mercy to people who have failed, who need forgiveness. And he says, when you come to this place, don't come sheepishly, come confidently, not because you should convince me that you are worthy of my forgiveness. You are, you're my son, you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter, I'll forgive you. But you come confidently because of everything I did at Calvary upon the cross. And I tell you, I love you so much. And that work that I accomplished there 2000 years ago, so secures your forgiveness, your redemption, my mercy just spilt out to you in your moment of need. You come expecting that that's what I'll give you in such an hour. So your question, hey Jesus, are we good? Listen, not based on anything I can say to you this morning, based on the authority of the gospel. Are you good with Jesus when you fail and you come honestly, earnestly before him? Yes, you're good. You're good He knew what he was saying when he said, you're saved, (laughs) you're being saved, and then one day you'll be fully saved. So, you know, Peter, I mean, he's just there, and the path to restoration is really found in two things. If you really want to know, do you love God? Um, You know your own heart better than anyone else, and then you get up from that place of sort of expressing your sincere repentance before God, and you do two things. One, you determine you're going to love God more, and you're going to take care of people. That's all, that's sort of one of the great acid tests for our love for God, that we'll live a life of devotion to him, and then God will go feed your sheep, take care of your people. That's what we do. I mean, our lives for his glory. So, how do we live successfully? By faith. How do we recover when we're not successful? By the grace of God. So by faith, by grace. The last question that you sort of find in this text is, how do you finish really well? And so go back to the end of that exchange. The very end. Jesus has asked his questions of Peter. He's responded. And then Jesus sort of alludes to how things go for Peter at the end. And this is what he says to him. He says, listen to me, when you were younger, Peter, you dressed yourself and you got up in the morning and you decided wherever you would go in a given day. But when you're older, you're not going to be able to dress yourself as easily. For those of us in the room who are older, we can attest that that, that's true, isn't it? I said to Chris the other day, I said, my left shoulder hurts worse than it's ever hurt. And so I finally went to the doctor and he said, have you heard of rheumatoid arthritis? 
I said, uh, I've heard of it, I don't want it. <laughs> he said, I can give you PT and some other things, but you're just going to sort of have to work on that shoulder because you broke your clavicle years ago playing football, and it's just sort of the way it's going to go for you because of the way things are. And on occasion, I'll say to Chris, hey, can you, can you give me a hand? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm having trouble putting my shirt on. And that's what Jesus says to Peter. There's coming a day, Peter, when as much as you would love to grab your outer garment and to throw it around you and to jump out of the boat and make your way to wherever it is that you want to go, there's coming a day where you won't be able to do that for yourself. And what's more is you used to decide wherever you would go in a given day, but one day someone's going to show up and lead you to a place where you really don't want to go. And you know that most of us agree that's sort of Jesus' way of saying here how Peter would glorify God with his death. And history tells us that Peter too is crucified, but at the time they go to put him to the cross, Peter says, you turn the cross upside down for me. I'm not worthy to die the way that Jesus died. Turn it upside down. I mean, all of these guys here, they die sort of martyrs' deaths. How do they finish so well? You see, here's what I know. They only die that way because they know Jesus is alive. That's it. I mean, John the Baptist is coming to the end of his life and he says to his earliest followers, go find Jesus one more time before they take my head. And you ask Jesus this question, are you the real deal or should we be looking for someone else? And he says, you go back and you tell John this. You tell him, you don't give him some great apologetics course on how come, you know, he can believe. You tell him this, the blind see, the lepers are healed. The lame walk, the dead are raised to life. And one more thing, tell him this, and this good news of the gospel is even preached to poor people, not just the rich people of society. And that was enough for him. You see, in the end, the only way you finish your life well, when you close your eyes and open them into the presence of Jesus, is if you live the way you want to die. And for those of us in this room, we want to die well for the glory of God. After 30 years as a pastor, I can tell you a few things matter at somebody's bedside when they're about to meet Jesus. Other than this, is my family here? Do they know that I love them? And do they love me? And this, am I good with Jesus? If you live by faith, recover by grace, and prioritize his glory day in and day out, as imperfect as you are, I know this, you're good with Jesus. You're good with Jesus. I'm going to close with a story shortly before the pandemic. Mark Batterson, an author I like to read, tells the story of the martyrdom of a guy named Polycarp. What you need to know about Polycarp is that he was actually discipled by John the Apostle. John the Apostle. And then John gave him an incredible assignment. He said, I'm going to make you the bishop of Smyrna. It's modern-day Turkey. 
It's where the church sort of gets its start. The church isn't there today any longer the way that it used to be, but you're here today a part of the church because people left that place to circumnavigate the globe and bring the gospel one day to the shores of a new America. And that church was rooted in people who lived by faith, experienced the grace of God, and prioritized the glory of his name. Batterson tells this story about Polycarp. He says, like a scene straight out of Gladiator, Polycarp was dragged into the Roman Colosseum. Discipled by the apostle John himself, the aged bishop faithfully and selflessly led the church at Smyrna through the persecution prophesied by his spiritual father in Revelation 2.10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. John had died a half century before, but his voice still echoed in Polycarp's ears as the Colosseum crowd chanted, Let loose the lion! That's when Polycarp heard a voice from heaven that was audible above the crowd, strong. Polycarp, play the man. Days before, Roman bounty hunters had tracked him down. Instead of fleeing, Polycarp fed them a meal. Perhaps that's why they granted his last request, an hour of prayer. Two hours later, many of those who heard the way Polycarp prayed actually repented of their sin on the spot. They did not, however, relent of their mission. Like Jesus entering Jerusalem, Polycarp was led into the city of Smyrna on a donkey. The Roman proconsul employed Polycarp to recant, swear by the genius of Caesar. But Polycarp held his tongue and held his ground. The proconsul prodded, swear and I will release thee, revile the Christ. Eighty and six years I have served him, Polycarp said, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so the die was cast. Polycarp was led to the center of the Colosseum where three times the proconsul announced, Polycarp has confessed himself to be a Christian. The bloodthirsty crowd chanted for death by beast, but the proconsul opted for fire. As his executioners seized his wrist to nail him to the stake, Polycarp stopped them. He who gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me to do so without the help of your nails. And the pyre was lit on fire and Polycarp prayed one last prayer. I bless you because you have thought me worthy of this day and this hour to be numbered among your martyrs in the cup of your Christ. Soon the flames engulfed him, but strangely they did not consume him. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before him, Polycarp was fireproof. Instead of the stench of burning flesh, the scent of frankincense wafted through the Colosseum. And so using a spear, the executioner stabbed Polycarp through the flames and Polycarp bled out, but not before the 12th martyr of Smyrna had lived out John's exhortation, be faithful even to the point of death. Polycarp died fearlessly and faithfully. And the way he died forever changed the way those eyewitnesses lived, Batterson writes. He did what the voice from heaven had commanded. Polycarp had played the man. Listen, I've told you repeatedly, You're good with Jesus. He's faithful. If you keep the faith, you recover by grace and you prioritize his glory in your life. I don't know any other way to finish well, to, dare I say it, to die well, to die for his glory than to leave here today and to live for his glory. Your life is an accumulation of days dedicated to the glory of God.
May it ever be so. Stand with me, we'll pray. Thank you so much, Father, for the privilege of looking into your word and gleaning from a conversation that happened so long ago but has been preserved on the pages of the greatest selling book in all of human history, the Bible. A book for us, your book is what makes it our book. It provides guidance, hope, help, and everything we need to know about you. Quiet any voice today that anyone may be hearing that leads them to think they can't recover from failure. Quiet it with the truth of your character, the truth of your word. Embolden them with faith that they may believe. And by faith, may they play the man or play the woman that they should inside of society today, telling people there's hope for the hurting. There's help for the helpless. There's everything we have need of. And it is found with Christ himself who has pledged himself to us and so we pledge ourselves to him. We look forward to seeing you, Jesus, soon and very soon. Until that day, be glorified in our lives and be glorified in our death. All of it, we pray, to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you, friends. Have a wonderful day.